Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5050 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5050. Enjoy! It has been 195 days since Breonna Taylor was last alive. 195 days since three Louisville police officers entered her apartment after midnight, executing a no-knock warrant related to Taylor's ex-boyfriend and killing her in a barrage of bullets, then failing to offer aid as she coughed and struggled to breathe in her last moments of life. After 195 days, this afternoon, we learned what will happen to those three officers and whether justice for Breonna Taylor will finally be served. And what we got was nothing near justice. The use of force by Mattingly and Cosgrove was justified to protect themselves. This justification bars us from pursuing criminal charges in Miss Brianna Taylor's death. And you know what? Justice is not the only thing that was missing. In fact, the Kentucky grand jury decision had almost nothing to do with Brianna Taylor. The 26-year-old first responder and aspiring nurse who was stolen from her family and her friends and her community, we didn't even hear her name in the decision today. What we heard instead were the initials of other residents of her apartment building, none of which were BT for Breonna Taylor. And the reason we heard those other initials was that the grand jury indicted one of the three officers, now former Detective Brett Hankison, on three counts of wanton endangerment for recklessly shooting into the neighbor's apartments, but not Brianna Taylor's. The other two officers, Jonathan Mattingly and Miles Cosgrove, face no charges at all, meaning none of the three officers will be charged for the actual killing of Brianna Taylor or for wantonly endangering her or her boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, who were the targets of the barrage of more than 20 bullets, six of which killed Brianna, meaning the grand jury did not find any of these officers criminally liable for killing Brianna Taylor and only one of them liable for not aiming properly and endangering the neighbors. After these findings were announced, Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who, by the way, is a protege of Senator Mitch McConnell, who was at his wedding early in early August, called Brianna's death a tragedy, as if her death were akin to a drowning or, or an accident or being hit by a bus, but then proceeded to make a highly politicized speech that included calling out those who dare to use their platforms to seek justice for Brianna. There will be celebrities, influencers, and activists who, having never lived in Kentucky, will try to tell us how to feel, suggesting they understand the facts of this case and that they know our community and the Commonwealth better than we do. But they don't. 
Let's not give in to their attempts to influence our thinking or capture our emotions. You know, I said it earlier today, and I will say it again. Tonight's, today's ruling states that in legal terms, Breonna Taylor's life did not matter. That message was heard loud and clear, and not just by black Kentuckians, but let's face it, by black Americans everywhere, that according to the theory of of the law that was voiced today by Attorney General Cameron, police have the perfect right to bust into your home in the middle of the night if you have any association with someone police are looking for, even if they've already found them. And they can shoot and kill you in your bed and walk away with no legal repercussions. And the only problem that these police will have is if they don't aim properly at you and they endanger your neighbors. And about that right to bear arms and defend yourself in your home, well, you know, that good old conservative rallying cry, Second Amendment. Oh, that doesn't apply to black people. Sorry. The rule of law, that doesn't apply to black people. Justice, uh, that doesn't apply to black people. That was the message that we heard from the state of Kentucky today. NBC News correspondent Cal Perry joins me now from Louisville. Louisville, uh, Louisville, I'm sure, is reacting to this, Cal. What are you seeing and what are the reactions that you're seeing? I think people were surprised uh, that they were surprised. I think a lot of people probably expected this, but were still shocked. For the first hour, everybody just kind of stood around and looked at each other. I'll, I'll pile on to what you said. If Sergeant Hankinson had shot straight and hit Breonna Taylor with a with a bullet, he might have been charged with murder. But instead, those rounds went into adjacent apartments. So what we are hearing from protesters whom you are looking at now is that there was more value put on that apartment building than on Breonna Taylor's life. As you said, 195 days since Breonna Taylor was alive. We have seen protests here every day. I want to read to you what her family has said, because, again, this national movement of say her name, Breonna Taylor, it matters nationally. What her family said is this. The decision today was, quote, outrageous and offensive to Breonna Taylor's memory, a documented and clear cover up and the death of an unarmed black woman who posed no threat and who was living her best life. Add to that what her sister put on Instagram a little bit while ago. Sister, you were failed by a system you worked hard for, and I am so sorry. I love you so, 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 so much. A reminder that Breonna Taylor was a frontline health worker, that she was killed in her house, in her apartment as police, as you have very well laid out, went into her apartment on what was called a no-knock raid. Now, there have been changes to the system since that raid. In a settlement with the family, we now know that you have to have a supervisor sign on to a warrant. There are so many questions about the warrant and what led police to her door. The FBI is looking into that. There is now this question, and I think the entire city wants to know and cannot find an explanation. Why were the police not wearing body cameras? It's 2020. There were no body cameras, at least none that were active, on those officers that went into that apartment. That is allegedly going to change. There is a change now to how police will actually put evidence into lockup. They have to be seen by other supervisors and be wearing body cameras from that. Ironic, and again, I'm reflecting to you what protesters have told me, ironic that in a civil suit, we see more progress than we did in a criminal proceeding, Joy. Yeah, that, that's pretty amazing, Cal, that literally the civil case, uh, you know, uh, that was brought by Attorney Crump actually ma- did more to change the system of justice in Kentucky than the attorney general, who did nothing but give a, a speech today. Pretty incredible. Cal Perry, thank you very much, man. Always appreciate you. And joining me now is the Reverend Al Sharpton, host of Politics Nation on MSNBC and president of the National Action Network, Alicia Garza, principal for the Black to the Future Action Fund, and who is on the cover of Time magazine, along with Patrice Cullors and Opal Tometi, as one of the 100 most influential people of 2020. Very much deserved. And Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor and author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men. And Paul, 
I'm going to start with you. I want to go through these indictments. I was on earlier with Ari Melber as we were all watching, and uh, Rev Sharpton was on as well. And we were watching this come through. And what I was focusing on and taking notes on was the indictment itself. Because they go through and they say wanton endangerment in the first degree, which sounds like a lot, except that it's a really pretty minor charge. I'm going to let you explain that. But they talk about it wantonly endangering the occupants of apartments with the initial CE, CN, and ZF. Definitely not BT, which is Breonna Taylor. Your thoughts on this indictment, which is an indictment of endangering the neighbors. It has nothing to do with Breonna Taylor. That's right, Troy. The two police officers who shot at Breonna Taylor and killed her are not charged with any crime. The police officer who did not shoot Breonna Taylor is charged with a low-level offense for putting her neighbors at risk. So many of the problems in policing are systemic and require structural change. This is not a systemic problem. Murder and manslaughter are already crimes in Kentucky. So here we have three bad apple cops who the Kentucky attorney general has now found to be above the law. And, and the, just to note that Hankison was fired, not for the killing of Breonna Taylor and for the outrage it's caused and for costing the city $6 million because of his stupidity in just licking off shots in somebody's apartment from outside a screen door. He was fired because the bullets went into the neighbor's apartment. That's why he was fired. Just to be clear, it wasn't about her. But what you have here, and I just want you to walk through this, Paul, for a little bit. We have Breonna Taylor's boyfriend, who was also a victim here. He was shot at because he tried to defend Breonna Taylor and defend that apartment for, for his trouble he got shot at, but these trained officers didn't even hit him. They didn't hit him with one bullet. These trained police officers only shot her. That's weird. And then didn't render her aid. You have Breonna Taylor's ex, who is the person that was supposedly the subject of this, who was already in custody. They go to an apartment. They say, well, he used it in the past. So we get to go in and do a no knock warrant, but it's no knock, but we knocked. So they're saying they announced themselves. Well, what's then? How's that a no knock warrant? That's weird. Then they say, well, if you, ex-boyfriend, will just say that Brianna was part of a crime, we'll let you off. And he said, I'm not doing that. She had nothing to do with anything. This does not strike me as a normal case because none of it makes sense. How can it be possible that a no-knock warrant includes them saying that they knocked? And how can it be that these officers are serving a search warrant at 1230 in the morning? Is that normal? And why is it that these officers seem to have coalesced around a story that isolates them from culpability to the point where one of them sends an email saying, we did the best and moral thing. We did the right and ethical things. Right and ethical things. This is what one of the three officers sent to um, his, his fellows, Jonathan Mattingly, in an email what was right and ethical? Not rendering aid to Breonna Taylor, the boyfriend being charged with a crime for doing nothing but defend himself, uh, and the ex-boyfriend being tried to implement. It doesn't, it's something stinks here, Paul. Does it stink to you? Indeed it does. A jury needed to decide this case, but instead the attorney general acted as judge and jury and everything but a prosecutor. The reason that cases go to trial is that there are two sides. Here, the attorney general abandoned his responsibility to the citizens and just bought the police version. He believed the one witness who said that the cops identified themselves before they burst into Brianna's house. And he ignored the 11 witnesses who said that the cops didn't identify themselves. The attorney general ignored the cover up where the police didn't use their body cameras and they submitted a police report that was full of lies. So you're right, Joy. We know that the attorney general 
is a conservative Republican who spoke at the GOP convention, and this stinks of politics. This decision is consistent with Trump's talking points about protecting the police and blue lives matter, but it's inconsistent with justice. Yeah, I think you have to always look at party. Party is the religion now in America, especially for Republicans. Don't look at the fact that this guy is black. That does not mean anything. He is a Republican through and through. He spoke at the RNC. He told you who he was. Believe him. Alicia Garza, uh, this guy did manage to get out a few words about celebrities. And he's upset that people are going to speak out on behalf of Breonna Taylor. He finds that offensive. Maybe he's still mad that Tina Knowles owned him on jumping off and doing his little marriage thing and having Mitch McConnell as his guest of honor and enjoying his life while Breonna laid cold in the ground. Maybe he's still mad at Tina Knowles. But what do you make of his performance today? And what do you think is going to happen in terms of uh, the activism around Breonna Taylor going from here? Well, Joy, you said it best. I mean, this was an atrocity. And I watched that press conference this morning and noticed that there were more words and more time given to activist celebrities and influencers who don't know what's happening in Kentucky than there was giving the actual facts of what was happening in this case giving condolences to this family that just last week was paid out $12 million in a civil suit because it acknowledges that there was wrongdoing here. And so, again, I think what I saw this morning was a a Bull Connor speech in 2020. And you're right. Unfortunately, it was being given by a black prosecutor. I, I think what's important for us to understand here is that what actually ends up happening is that the misdoings and the 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 actions of these officers get sloughed off onto communities. Communities like this end up paying millions and millions of dollars in taxpayer dollars for police misconduct and police violence and police abuse. And unfortunately, I think what we're seeing here is a case of collusion. This is what this is how police officers are not held accountable uh, in when they commit crimes in our communities. And what we've found in the black census is that that is what black communities want to see police officers being held accountable when they commit crimes in our communities. And so to answer your question about what is going to happen in this in uh, in terms of activism, people are going to keep fighting. People are going to keep organizing and they're going to keep pushing. We saw something very typical in it this morning in the press conference where there was a task force announced to study the problem. Hmm. And quite frankly, my mentors hmm. have always said that task forces are the places where accountability and good ideas go to die. And so that is actually what yep. just happened yeah. here. And it's deeply unfortunate. Yeah. That seems like Cameron's goal here is to just let it die. Just to point out, in 2019, more than $300 million in taxpayer money was used to cover financial settlements for police misconduct in America. From 2005 to 2018, of the 98 police officers who were arrested following a fatal on-duty shooting, three of them, only three were convicted of murder. And 35 of those officers who were convicted were convicted of a lesser offense like manslaughter and negligent homicide instead of murder. So it's much more likely that cities, uh, Rev, are just going to pay out. They'd rather just pay with taxpayer money than do justice. And you have the civil settlement actually being the only way that there's been any change in policing. Cameron hasn't done a damn thing, honestly. Uh, You've been doing this a long time, Rev. Your thoughts? My thoughts, first of all, one of the reasons that we are saying that you need to 
remove the immunity from police is if police themselves are subject to some of these lawsuits, uh, their family would be telling them, we could lose the house, we could lose the car, don't go uh, uh, out there and act in a way that is aggressive and against the law, which we were able to get passed in New York State finally, but we are still pursuing that nationally. And the thing that, that was offensive to me is that the whole rallying cry, thanks to Alicia and her two brilliant partners of Black Lives Matter that started the night of George Zimmerman's acquittal, is that they came back today saying, no, Black lives don't matter, because the life that was lost was not even addressed in this uh, indictment. It was those that might have had collateral damage why we killed somebody, but we're not going to address the criminality of killing that person because they don't matter. This black woman doesn't matter. Even though we were not even after her, even though the person we claimed to be after was not there and in fact in custody, it doesn't matter on, on a criminal level. The other thing to say that celebrities and activists and influencers uh, come in that don't know them, we were called in by the people in Kentucky. The family of Brianna right. called people in. And Kentucky has no problem if we come to Kentucky to go to the Kentucky Derby and watch some horses run around behind each other. But don't come in there for a black woman who's been killed. Well, they're going to have the activist derby in Louisville, just like they have the Kentucky Derby, because the value of that black woman's life is more to me than it is a horse. Brianna's mother did one of her first interviews, if not her first one on Politics Nation. She spoke at our march just three weeks ago uh, in Washington. They have brought their plea to all of us, and we're going to respond. One of the ways we respond, and I hope we don't have violence because I don't want to see any of us become like what we're fighting, but we need to really understand that this prosecutor's mentor, Mitch McConnell, is on the ballot this in about uh, uh, six yes. weeks right there in Kentucky. And they need to put some of that energy toward voting and sending a message. If in the name of Brianna, we retire Mitch McConnell as majority leader, that's a step toward showing how serious we are. It's not justice for that family, but it's a step that we are serious about what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And Mr. Cameron should recall that the prosecutors involved in the Tamir Rice case uh, and the the uh, the Michael Brown case, they lost their jobs based on their behavior. So he's got three. He's got four more years to go. He just got in. But he should just keep that in mind. You're absolutely right. And it's so very Southern uh, that a, a bullet in the wall is more of a crime than a bullet six bullets inside of the body of Breonna Taylor. Such a very Southern, uh, old-fashioned, in an antebellum sort of way uh, kind of decision. Uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, Alicia Garza, Paul Butler, thank you very much. Up next on The Readout, Donald Trump gleefully bragging about his super spreader event in Pittsburgh. No distancing, few masks. Trump makes no mention of the horrifying milestone of 200,000 dead Americans. But he did crack a joke or two about the virus. It's the China virus, not the coronavirus. Corona sounds like a place in Italy, a beautiful place. It's Corona, but coronavirus doesn't sound like Italy, a beautiful villa. You have a beautiful Corona. Wow. And as the nation mourns the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Republicans rush to approve a right wing successor. They can't get a bill done to help people who are struggling economically. Legendary 
feminist Gloria Steinem joins me on Ginsburg's legacy in the fight ahead. Back with more of the readout after this. You ready to go to work? I'm so ready to go to work. She's Joe Biden's choice to be next in line. But who is Kamala Harris? I did not see that she was going to be an attorney general, a senator, a vice presidential nominee. Join me, Joy Reid, as I explore her life's journey from Oakland to Washington. So we sit down in the office and she's like, I'm at 6%. And I was like, well, what the f*** am I supposed to do with that? From MSNBC and Wondery, Kamala, next in line. New episodes every Monday. Subscribe for free wherever you're listening right now. On Friday, October 16th, how one man saw the presidency will change how you see the world. Focus Features and MSNBC Films present The Way I See It. Based on the New York Times number one bestseller, from the producer of the Academy Award-winning Free Solo and director Don Porter, this new documentary offers an unprecedented look behind the scenes at two of the most iconic presidents in American history, Barack Obama and Ronald Reagan, as seen through the eyes of renowned official White House photographer Pete Souza. Souza was eyewitness to what it means to be the most powerful person on earth, an experience that transformed him from a photojournalist to a searing commentator and activist on the issues we face as a country today. The Way I See It is your behind-the-scenes all-access pass to the highest office in the land through the lens of a man who captured it all. Watch the television premiere of The Way I See It, commercial-free, Friday, October 16th at 10 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. This is what American carnage looks like. 202,000 dead Americans. 29 people receiving some form of unemployment assistance with nearly 1 million who continue to file new unemployment claims on a weekly basis. And 20%, that's one out of five small businesses across the U.S. remaining shuttered. But when you ask Trump, he said he did a bang-up job, deserving of an A+. When he's asked about the milestone of deaths, here is how much he cares. Why haven't you said anything about the U.S. hitting 200,000 deaths? Go ahead. Uh, anybody else? Over the, over the past two weeks, the country has seen a 13 percent rise in positive cases. And in 18 states, new cases are high and staying there. In the past 48 hours, we've seen nearly 1,500 people die from the virus. Communities of color continue to disproportionately be affected by the virus. And a new poll finds that, not surprisingly, Latino, Black and Indigenous households are hardest hit economically as well. But they shouldn't expect much sympathy from this president. Former and current U.S. officials tell The Washington Post that in unguarded moments with senior aides, Trump has maintained that black Americans have mainly themselves to blame in their struggle for equality, hindered more by lack of initiative than societal impediments. For more, I'm joined by Dr. Kavita Patel, former Obama White House policy director, and Mehdi Hassan, political commentator and broadcaster. Um, Mehdi, let me start with you on these are not they're not new information. These new revelations in The Washington Post, they're just starker than normal. Uh, and as if to back them up, here was Donald Trump talking about a member of Congress uh, yesterday. How about Omar of Minnesota? We're going to win the state of Minnesota because of her, they say. He's telling us how to run our country. How did you do where you came from? How is your country doing? They're going to tell, she's going to tell us, she's telling us how to run our country. 
Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is an American and an American member of Congress. I, I shouldn't even have to say that, but I guess I have to because Trump is saying some madness. And here is yeah. to add to it. Let's just make it worse. The Washington Post reports that after calls, just because he's ecumenical with his uh, racism and hatred, after phone calls with Jewish lawmakers, Trump has muttered that Jews are only in it for themselves and stick together in an ethnic allegiance that exceeds other loyalties, officials said. So he's He's ecumenical with it. Your thoughts, Mehdi? My thoughts are you played that clip, Joy, and it makes my skin crawl. I may have seen it maybe a half a dozen times since last night. Um, I'm a Muslim immigrant to the United States. I have kids who are Muslim Americans. I look at Donald Trump's racism, and that's what it is, pure racism. It's literally the definition of racism, to tell a person who is an immigrant, but who is an American citizen, to go back to where they came from, that this isn't really their country. And he, as you say, he does, it, he does it with Jews. He tells Jews that Israel is their country, and he tells a Somali Muslim refugee who is an elected member of Congress, has been an American citizen for more than two decades, uh, that how did you run your country? For the record, Ilhan Omar left Somalia at the age of eight. Uh, she never had any opportunity to run Somalia in any shape or form. And the racism is across the board. As you mentioned, this is not the first time he's gone after Omar. Last year, uh, he went after all four members of the squad, telling them to go back to their crime-infested countries. Um, Ilhan's born in, uh, you know, in, in Somalia, but AOC is born in the Bronx. Ayanna Presley is born in Cincinnati. Rashida Tlaib is born in Detroit. I mean, the, Joy, you and I, I'm sure, and many other people have color watching the show. We grew up listening to people telling us to go back to where we came from, telling us that we are not from the countries yep. in which we were born and raised that we claim citizenship is. It is the worst, the lowest, the most brazen, the most disgusting, the most old-fashioned and authentic form of racism there is. And it's coming from the president of the United States 40-odd days out from an election. And people say, well, you know, uh, you know, let's talk about something else. Let's, you know, it's, it, the normalization, Joy, really frustrates me. We should be talking about this all the time, not saying, well, we've heard it before, or, or the Washington Post having to talk to former officials about what he's saying in private. It's just, this should be front and center. The man is racist. He's behaving in a racist way. And it's, I, for once, I'm lost for words, Joy. It's disgusting. Yeah. No, I, I, I get it because, I mean, and I think that every Republican member of Congress in the House and Senate should be asked every day, account for this. You heard him say this, your thoughts, because they run away and say, we don't listen to what he says. We don't hear it. They act as if they don't hear it. They're part of it. If you're not, if you're not saying anything about it, y'all, the Republicans, sorry, you're part of it. The other thing that Doc, uh, Donald Trump, uh, Dr. Patel seems to be more open about now um, he is open about just pretending that the virus isn't real, that it isn't happening, that the devastation economically and in terms of health isn't real. And that's now it's now dribbled on to his followers. They're doing it, too. Um, let's listen to Dr. Anthony Fauci rebuking um, Senator Rand Paul, who technically has a degree in something medical. I think he's like an eye, an eye doctor or something. But um, apparently he didn't study too much in school when it came to science. Here he is debating Dr. Fauci. Right now. If you look at what's going on right now, the things that are going on in New York to get their test positivity 1% or less is because they are looking at the guidelines that we have put together from the task force of the four or five things of masks, social distancing, outdoors, more than indoors, avoiding crowds, and washing hands. Or they've developed enough community immunity right. that they're no longer having the pandemic because they have enough immunity in New York City to actually stop. I challenge that, uh, Senator. I'm afraid. Because I'm afraid I, I want, please, sir, I would like to be able to do this because this happens with Senator Rand all the time. You were not listening to what the director of the CDC said. 
that in New York, it's about 22%. If you believe 22% is herd immunity, I believe you're alone in that. You know, Dr. Patel, it's bad enough when Dr. Trump thinks that he is promoting herd mentality. He means herd immunity. Well, now you have Rand Paul doing the same thing. Um, how much trouble are we in if you have Republican officials trying to push this idea that would mean, you know, what, another six million people dead? Yeah, this is, I mean, Joy, you said it. This is a herd mentality by just kind of, it's demonizing science. And you know what? I could watch that Fauci clip over and over again because he's one of the most preeminent infectious disease doctors in the world, writes foremost you know, chapters and textbooks that we all study from. And that was a true smackdown that was well-deserved because to your point, this constant reverberation against the facts, you know, that we can have herd immunity without actually having consequences, that we can ignore the consequences that we do have, that we can have 121 children die, 80% of which are children of color for no other reason except that they were born just as Mehdi said, just into, you know, a culture of immigration that all three of us can share. This demonization is spilling over into science. And, and Joy, he just said it today, that if the FDA has a rigorous science approval for an evidence-based scientific transparent approval of the vaccine, it's not up to the FDA. The commissioner made a mistake. It's up to the White House. This is a unitary power that is being defined and has been going on. It, it is. It is bizarre. Uh, before we go, Mehdi, really quickly, you have now the governor of Missouri has tested positive. He and his wife both have tested positive uh, for covid. Um, at least one person who uh, attended Donald Trump's September 10 super spreader rally has tested positive. Uh, are we essentially now yeah. seeing a Trump virus, essentially, that the virus is going to follow him and the people who follow him around? It's a very good point. He loves to give names to viruses. He doesn't want to call it the coronavirus. He wants to call it the China virus. Fine, let's call it the Trump virus. I think your colleague Chris Hayes, friend of both of ours, makes a very good point. Trump at this point is objectively pro-COVID. Put it this way. Uh, if you wanted to spread the coronavirus, if you were trying to get people to get the virus, what would you do differently that Donald Trump's not already doing right now? Yep. The Trump virus it is. He likes to call things names. He likes to have his name on things. Congratulations, Donald. You've got yourself a virus. Thank you, Dr. Kavita Patel. Thank you, Mehdi Hassan. Uh, friends both really appreciate you still ahead. Uh, the biggest unanswered question of our time, is Russia exerting some kind of influence over Donald Trump? And if not, why is the CIA making it harder for intelligence on Russian interference to reach the White House? We'll dig into all of that straight ahead. Stay with us. It's really a shame that our government is controlled by someone who knows that he owes his first election to Russia and is counting on Russia to help him. And not only in the social media arena, but I increasingly am wondering about our our actual election infrastructure. Just beware, everybody. Um, don't let uh, Vladimir Putin choose your next president. The winner of the last presidential election by more than three million votes knows about stealing an election, knows about Russia stealing an election for Donald Trump. 
And they're trying it again, of course. Donald Trump doesn't acknowledge that Russia stole the last election for him, so it comes as no surprise that, as political reports, the CIA has made it harder for intelligence about Russia to reach the White House, stoking fears among current and former officials that information is being suppressed to please a president known to erupt in anger whenever he is confronted with bad news about Moscow. If it's not disturbing enough that the president of the United States has to be shielded from intelligence about foreign interference in American elections because of his feelings, a terrifying new report in The Atlantic about how Trump himself could steal the election should scare you even more. Author Barton Gelman writes, the worst case is not that Trump rejects the election outcome. The worst case is that he uses his power to prevent a decisive outcome against him. Trump's state and national legal teams are already laying the groundwork for post-election maneuvers that would circumvent the results of the vote count in battleground states. Ambiguities in the Constitution make it possible to extend the dispute all the way to Inauguration Day, adding that two men could show up to be sworn in. One of them would arrive with all the tools and power of the presidency already in hand. And if you don't believe that a plan to steal the election is in the works, Donald Trump is already using the political battle over the Supreme Court to set us up for it. And that is next. We need nine justices. You need that. Uh, with the unsolicited millions of ballots that they're sending, it's a scam. It's a hoax. Everybody knows that. And the Democrats know it better than anybody else. So you're going to need nine justices up there. I think it's going to be very important. Donald Trump is fear-mongering against mail-in voting to gin up support for ramming through a Supreme Court nominee, becoming his own disinformation machine. The Atlantic reports that the crusade against mail-in voting is a key component in setting up a plan to steal the next election, to contest election night results. Never mind the fact that Russia continues its own meddling in our elections, or that the FBI is warning about that foreign disinformation, warning that foreign disinformation may target election results. The FBI said state and local officials are trustworthy sources, but not the man who keeps pushing lies that voting by mail is riddled with fraud, as he did again just last hour when he refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power after the election. We're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I and, understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you oh, commit no, to making no, sure that no, there's a no, peaceful wanna, transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer. Frankly, there'll be a continuation. Wow. I'm joined now by Malcolm Nance, MSNBC counterterrorism and intelligence analyst. And Malcolm, you heard him just say it right there. He's not committing to a peaceful transfer of power because there won't be a transfer. Your thoughts? You know, in his mind, he really believes that this election is superfluous, that there really shouldn't be an election and that any election that's held, Donald Trump automatically wins. I really think that he told us precisely what he feels. There won't be a transition in this election. There will be a victory for Donald Trump, and there will be no reason to have anything other than an inauguration for him. I think that it will be devastating to both the nation and Donald Trump when he loses, if he loses, because he doesn't know how to handle this. I think it was Mary Trump who said that his, his pathology in his mind is, is that he can't handle anything beyond what he imagines in his head. Yeah, but I mean, it's either he 
just doesn't believe the polls and, and has his power of positive thinking hat on and just is like, I can't lose. And that's just what he thinks. Or he knows, you know, this is what people worry about. Does he know something we don't know, that they've already planned, that Russia has already weighed in, that he's already gotten assurances, his foreign helpers will help? I mean, th this piece in The Atlantic says that Trump may win or lose, but what he'll do is he'll just insist that the election was rigged. Um, he's not actually trying to prevent mail-in voting, The Atlantic writes, uh, but he's discrediting the practice so that he can lay the groundwork for post-election night plans to contest the results. The thing that I think a lot of people worry about is that Donald Trump may think whatever he wants in his head, but Republicans act on what he thinks to try to protect him. And that state at the state level, Republicans and at the federal level and now in the Supreme Court will act on his dreams and keep him in power even if he loses. You know, the Atlantic uh, article was title was absolutely spot on. The election that will break America, that could break America. And it's 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 true. The Republican Party sees themselves as not just the enablers of Donald Trump anymore. They are the enforcers of his law. And as far as he's concerned, his dictum, what comes out of his mouth is law. I suspect that we're also going to be seeing a lot more interaction from foreign actors. And the one that I fear the most is that on election night, as the first results are coming in, uh, whether it's Russia, whether it's North Korea, whether it's the Trump data team and Donald Trump himself, they will start mass pushing through social media that he won. They will create a, a meta narrative, a psychological framework of their victory, even though no one will declare it except for the Donald Trump and the Republican Party. That right there yep. will fracture this nation right down the middle. And I do not believe for not one moment that he will not use the attorney general and all the tools of force in the United States government short of the armed forces. Well, here's the, here's the other thing. I mean, the CIA is withholding information from him about intelligence regarding what Russia is doing. And I don't know if that means they're still working on it, just not telling him, or they're just standing down, which worries me if they're standing down. Uh, but also Donald Trump's incentive structure is actually really powerful. It's stay out of prison. Don't get indicted, right? Stay, use being president to prevent yourself from getting indicted. But it's also cash. Donald Trump, per Forbes, has raked in for his businesses $1.9 billion of revenue during his first three years in office. It's not clear whether he was a billionaire before, but it says here that even if his tenure ends in January 2021, Trump should be the first president to literally rake in billions of dollars while serving in office. He's an American Putin, as far as he's concerned, and he wants to keep the cash rolling in. So he has every incentive to try to stay in forever, doesn't he? Of course, because he's an oligarch. He's an oligarch wannabe. However, the thing that I believe he fears the most and which has probably created a blank space in his mind where he does not see the polls and he cannot see anything but victory is the very fact that that money might be seized in a future criminal prosecution where he was making money while running the United States government, including that of his daughter and his sons, the entire Trump organization. <clears throat> this is existential for Donald Trump. That would be something else. Um, that would be it something would be. to see. Malcolm Nance, thank you. It's all, always great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you very much. And up next, the legacy of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the challenges that lie ahead. Gloria Steinem joins me when the readout comes back.
Hey guys, Willie Geist here. This week on the Sunday Sit-Down Podcast, I get together with Ina Garten for a virtual catch-up about her latest cookbook, filming her show while at home the last few months, and a Zoom cocktail party with Ina. Get our conversation now for free wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Tremaine Lee, host of Into America, a podcast from MSNBC. Join me as we go into the roots of inequality. It's an economic injustice and a racial injustice. And then when you add health, it's a health injustice. Into what's at stake. People are going to be voting not for a person, but for stability. And into what comes next. Into America, a podcast about who we are as Americans and who we want to become. New episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Subscribe now. On behalf of all the justices, the spouses of the justices, and the entire Supreme Court family, I offer our heartfelt condolences on the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Her 483 majority, concurring, and dissenting opinions will steer the court for decades. She will live on in what she did to improve the law and the lives of all of us. And yet, still, Ruth is gone, and we grieve. Supreme Court, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is currently lying in repose outside of the Supreme Court, where she'll be today and tomorrow, where she will be today and tomorrow for members of the public to pay their respects before lying in state at the Capitol on Friday. And joining me now is Gloria Steinem, writer, political activist and feminist organizer and icon, I dare say. Uh, and Gloria, thank you so much for being here. Um, one of the reasons I love my team is they find so much great information that I didn't know. And I think I know things, but you met um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the 70s when she was working at the ACLU and you were contributing at New York Magazine. Tell me about her sending you to Mississippi to interview Fannie Lou Hamer, who had been sterilized without her consent, a story that rings quite true today. That's just one of the ways that she was always ahead of everyone. And she understood that reproductive rights, reproductive freedom, that's a fundamental human right. And because Fannie Lou had been sterilized without her knowledge or permission when she went into a hospital for something else, her testimony helped Ruth to protect the rights of two young women who were threatened by a state legislature with the loss of state support if they were not sterilized. I mean, you know, this was a time when we didn't yet quite have words of, for reproductive freedom and reproductive justice, but Ruth was absolutely there. Yeah. And, you know, you, you let me put up your tweet uh, that you put up with the photo and you wrote, she left us a clear and precious legacy. It's up to us to keep her spirit alive. That fight right now centers on her seat itself. Ted Cruz today blocked a resolution honoring Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg because he objected to the mention of her dying wish that she not be replaced until a new president comes in. And the Republican Party is now rushing to vote in Donald Trump's pick before the election. What do you make about that? What do you make of this fight? I think it's outrageous. And uh, Romney, who had previously said that he would wait until after the election, has just sacrificed his entire political career by doing this duplicitous, ridiculous thing. I mean, you know, uh, clearly uh, that was her last wish. That's the wish of, you know, look at the polls, most Americans, most, you know, the idea of trying, they may not be able to rush it through, I suppose, but even trying to rush it through is outrageous. 
Yeah. You know, Meghan and Markle, Princess Harry and Meghan Markle, uh, I blundered the names, Princess Harry and Meghan Markle, they actually talked about voting, which was really interesting. And they talked about combating misinformation. Meghan Markle said, every four years, we are told the same thing, that this is the most important election of our lifetime. But this one is, she said. Uh, And Prince Harry said, as we approach this November, it's vital to think we reject hate speech. Uh, It's vital that we reject hate speech, misinformation and online negativity. Both statements, I think, that were, were kind of about the president, too. Here was Donald Trump's response to their statement. Uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle uh, chimed in on the U.S. election and essentially encouraged people to vote for Joe Biden. I wanted to get your reaction to that. I'm not a fan of hers. And uh, I would say this, and she probably has heard that, but uh, I wish a lot of luck to Harry because he's going to need it. You know, um, you know, Donald Trump is 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 quite a a, quite the suck up when it comes to the royal family. He wants them to like him. Uh, But what do you make of the fact that he skipped over Prince Harry entirely and went right after Meghan Markle? Well, he always goes right after women. You know, he's he's could not possibly be more clear in his hatred and fear of women. Uh, But of course, uh, first of all, he misrepresented. I mean, she did not say that she was who she was voting for. She said she was coming home to vote, right? And Harry also was very clear that he regretted that all of his life he hasn't been able to vote, which I must say I hadn't thought about, that nobody in the royal family can vote. She is a smart, principled, amazing person. We sat here together and made cold calls to voters on the phone and saying, we didn't tell them who to vote for. We just said, vote. It's so important to vote. She's being totally principled and true. You know, it's it, it, Donald Trump's attitude uh, toward humanity is 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 an odd thing uh, for an American president. Um, but his supporters' um, reactions to humanity, to mass death and from COVID, to all of it, um, and to this mm-hmm. justice passing away, are also odd. Um, there's a story in the New York Times that Trump aides worried that they sh- that they they kept the information that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died from Trump because he was at a rally and they were afraid that if he announced it from the stage, that his crowd would boo. What do you make of that? I don't know. I mean, boo or cheer. I mean, I, I, you know, I have, I have no idea. Um, but I mean, they would cheer, sorry, that they would cheer. Yeah, no, you corrected me that they, that the crowd would cheer the fact that she had passed. Correct. Yeah. Well, I hope they're not as crazy as he is, but you have to remember that he is a narcissist and narcissists uh, are incapable of empathy. He cannot feel what anyone else is feeling. He only has two modes of behavior and that make him completely predictable. He will respond with hostility to the smallest criticism, no matter how accurate, and he will follow any praise, even if it comes from Russia or the Arab world, I mean, you know, it doesn't matter where it comes from, he will follow it. And that was pointed out by some 200 psychiatrists when he was first elected. He is 100% predictable. Yeah. Last question, very quickly. What do you think Ruth Bader Ginsburg would want us to do uh, with our time now? Uh, Well, I don't presume to know in each situation, but I think if we say to ourselves, if we deeply think, what would Ruth do? And then do it ourselves. 
she yeah. will be with us. That's the only, in, in, you know, she was the one person yep. on the court who people didn't say, did she yep. vote right? However, she voted was yeah. right. She voted with her right. principles. So we, we are out of time. Gloria yes. Steinem, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, I also want to let you guys know that I'm going to be on with Jimmy Fallon later this evening if you guys are up late. So check out The Tonight Show. Hey, everyone, it's Chris Hayes. You know, these days I find it helpful to just take a step back from the day-to-day -day onslaught of news and take a broader look at the issues I haven't had time to cover on my TV show All In. Everything from the legacy of racism in America to how community and creativity can flourish amidst a pandemic to how Democrats could win in deep red America. I do it each week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? And I'm joined by uniquely qualified guests like Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones. Progress does not mean justice or equality or that we are right. After 400 years of Black people being in this country, the time for marking incremental progress and patting ourselves on the back for that has been long over. Author Rebecca Solnit. How do we take care of each other in the context of not being able to physically be with each other in ordinary ways? Crooked Media's John Favreau. It's going to be the highest turnout election in history, which means that it is a persuasion game. And many others who help me make sense of what's happening in our society and our world. I really enjoy our conversations. I hope you will too. So join me for new episodes every Tuesday. Just search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.